All right, guys, welcome to the debrief. Uh, David, we just had Jeremy Allaire on. Um, what were some of your takeaways from that? Yeah, the, I think that the three modes of conversation we had were crypto dollars, stable coins, got that nomenclature down. Glad we had that conversation. And we, of okay. course, can I ask you though, yeah, like that uh -huh. nomenclature difference? Mm -hmm. What's it? I don't think like he eventually Jeremy said, well, it's all just semantics anyway. Mm -hmm. Is there yeah. a clear distinction in your mind between uh, crypto dollars and stable coins? Because for me, there's there's not quite yet. Oh, I, I think I could make a case for one. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into this. Um, yeah. Dai and all the algorithmic stable coins, uh, empty set dollar, dynamic set dollar, basis cash. Those are stable coins because they're stable or they're supposed to be right. Um, empty set dollar is not stable. It's like at 70 cents right now. Not the point. It's a stable coin because it's a coin that's stable. It's not a dollar. Dai is not a dollar. There's no one that can redeem a Dai for a dollar for you. You can trade one for a dollar. But USDC, you can redeem one for a dollar, making it a crypto dollar. Whereas DAI and empty set dollars are, are not crypto dollars because to me, the crypto hyphen dollar is, this is a dollar in crypto form, but a DAI is not a dollar. And, and all the other algorithmic stable coins aren't dollars. They're representations of dollars where USDC so is actually an extension of a dollar. So for you, it's about the redemption. Like what makes a crypto dollar? A crypto dollar is it can be redeemed for dollars and crypto dollars are a subset of stable coins, but stable coins are then like much broader. Of course, hmm. they include crypto dollars, but they also include algorithmic stable coins, things like DAI. They could also include non-dollar dominated stable things like mm -hmm. something in euros or something, right? Um, I was actually I think prepared that, that, to separate that makes sense those two to me. umbrellas. I was actually prepared to keep have, them separate. Yeah, but but I could also be convinced that crypto dollars are a subset of stable coins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that makes sense to me. And I interrupted your flow. You said there were three things. So the yeah. first was uh, <laughs> so we just rehashed that one, and then we also talked about yeah. the growth and demand for crypto dollars on Ethereum, and, and then also the regular the regulatory conversation. Um, I think the regulatory conversation I think is probably the most valuable one to me because that's the thing that. I'm always um, tending to use other resources to stay on top of, like Jake Stravinsky comes to mind. And then Jeremy Allaire, yeah. as the, the founder, the CEO behind Circle, behind USCC, has been at the forefront of um, just all of these regulatory barrages, good or bad, right? Like um, the, the stable coin, the stable act, uh, the, the FinCEN guidance from Mnuchin, but then also the, the, the OCC comptroller. Um, so I think he's obviously incentivized and more informed to be informed about the future of regulation. So getting his perspective there, I think, was super valuable. Yeah, it was super valuable. And the interesting thing is he knows some of these people, right? He mentioned that um, he used to teach the MIT class on blockchain with Gary Gensler, who is the SEC chair, right? Um, so he doesn't just know about their positions or their platforms. He actually knows some of these individuals. He seemed to know uh, Janet Yellen the least um, of everyone that, that we talked about. So maybe that's still kind of a question mark. But overall, he did seem pretty optimistic about the US's um, regulatory posture to the space. But at the end of the day, like one thing I really like about Jeremy is that he definitely has a crypto native mindset. Like he believes in ether as commodity money, Bitcoin as commodity money, and these are store, store values, but he's also playing the crypto banker game. And the reason that's good is because you have a, a group of like ultra hardcore 
um, pragmatist, super bankless, super non-sovereign, get the state out of my business, like advocates on the one side. But then you have these, these people that kind of like span that side of things and also the banking side and serve as a bridge to mainstream. Like we're never going... Not everyone in the world is going to be a bankless crypto anarchist, David, right? Like that's just not the case. Like my grandma's never going to like join the, well, maybe she would, she loves her grandson, but like um, it, we're not gonna convince everyone of that posture, right? So we need to adopt mainstream and Jeremy does a nice job bridging those things. What I think is interesting too, is he is an advocate in DC. Like I've seen him speak in front of um, Congress before, you know, like his written letters to the SEC, these sorts of things, they have an impact. But you know, what's interesting to me is um, somebody like Rowan Gray would see Jeremy as the enemy, <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. which is like, so Rowan Gray would see Jeremy as another crypto banking lobbyist mm -hmm. that is trying to influence policymakers and make uh, just for the success of his industry and his particular business, right? Right, trying um, to capture. He was trying to ca was trying to capture, capture, right? Yeah. And like, there's an element of how how else do you play the game? Right. You, I mean, if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table, then somebody else is going to capture it, right? So, yeah, he is trying to put. I don't know if capture is maybe too strong a word, but he's definitely trying to push his agenda in DC because partially because he benefits, but partially I think because he thinks crypto is a good thing for the world. But what, what do you think of that criticism? You know, like from a Rowan Gray who says like, yeah, this is, these are your bankers trying to capture Washington again. We've seen that before. Right, Rowan Gray was always so cynical about almost <laughs> yes. everything, like, like bankers, entrepreneurs, like techies, Silicon Valley. Like the thing is, I'm, I don't know what- Except what, MMT, he was not cynical on MMT. MMT. Yeah. I don't know what Ro, Rowan Gray could be like shown where he'd be like, yeah, that is okay. If it's re somehow related to the free market, right? Like um, Jeremy is just a guy who says, who thinks that technological innovation and free market enterprise is how we move forward as a world, as a species. And I don't uh, have, who, who argues with that other than Rohan Gray? Like, you know, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's like capture the capturing regulatory energy by you know, USDC, by promoting lobbying or whatever. That's, it's not, it, it captures got this loaded term to it, but it's otherwise just like being an advocate for yourself, your business and your industry, which yeah, like, damn, if crypto had zero advocates for this industry, we would be so effed. Like we yeah. need advocates the most. And so I feel like that's part of what uh, Jeremy's role is in addition to just helping, you know, have USDC liquidity inside of Ethereum. Yeah, look, and you know, if, if the US regulatory regime tried to, tried to kill crypto or clamp down on it, right? They couldn't ultimately, um, they couldn't destroy it, but they could definitely slow it down. They could definitely slow down US adoption of it. So that's why I think this, this game is important, but Jeremy was pretty dismissive of Rowan Gray. <laughs> <laughs> he called so like a, a fringe uh, academic or fringe professor or something was the term he sort of used. So yeah, he's he didn't think that, professor too. So yeah, <laughs> he didn't he didn't think that the stable act had any legs. Um, and certainly he made the point that you know look that came from you know some uh, fringe legislative mm -hmm. kind of group. This is not the regulators taking that posture. Um, he was also pretty uh, pretty complimentary of FinCEN. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Of all of the agencies, David, FinCEN is the one that that um, scares me the most. Sure. Right. This whole like financial surveillance regime. 
So, you know, I'm not sure about that posture of things, but we'll see how Janet Yellen operates mm-hmm. things. It does, from Jeremy's perspective, it does seem like FinCEN has a, a strong understanding of the crypto space, at least. So it's reasonably informed, which I guess is a good thing, but we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, there was a, a tweet that I wish we had included in the weekly roll-up that's specifically about this subject. So I'm going to I'm gonna read it here. This is from Kathy Wood, who's the head of ARK Invest. And then Jake uh, commented below it. Uh, as the Fed, as chair of the Fed from February 2014 to February 2018, Yellen was on the policy watch as Bitcoin soared from $1,000 to $20,000 in 2017. The fact that this week she's focused on the risk of uh, potential nefarious actors instead of the risk to U.S. monetary sovereignty is reassuring. And then Jake Shravinsky responds below, uh, for the most part, regulators don't think that Bitcoin is a threat to monetary sovereignty, just a speculative investment asset and potential illicit finance risk. But they do view stable coins as threats to monetary sovereignty. And Bitcoin may get caught up in efforts to control them. That was actually that these tweets were written after our uh, recording session with Jeremy. But the, I think those are pretty interesting perspectives. Where it's not the the power of the U.S. regulators not going to be threatened by Bitcoin, but rather by stable coins. And Bitcoin is just going to be this like speculative asset that you know degenerates are aping into. Um, well, but but so what I don't understand about um, Jake's tweet right there is he said that monetary sovereignty would be threatened by crypto dollars, basically, right? I can definitely see where the financial surveillance regime in the US would be threatened by crypto dollars and want to put AML, KYC over everything. But monetary sovereignty is interesting because to me, I would actually argue the opposite, David. It feels like um, the US would want to export its currency everywhere. And it's essentially exporting that currency into um, into DeFi right now and onto crypto rails, and it's getting it in places it couldn't have previously, you know, been received. So I f- I feel like crypto dollars, to the extent they're denominated in in the U.S. reserve current, like the dollar, is actually a win uh, for U.S. monetary policy. Um, so I, I don't know. What are you What are your thoughts on that? What do you think Jake meant? Do you think he would say that or? I think it's a win for the proliferation and um, branding of the dollar. So, you know, Ethereum is a protocol that lives on the internet that is able to get itself integrated into every single corner of the internet. And therefore, USDC is too. We could dominate the landscape of the internet in this new financial paradigm using USDC as a stablecoin, as the dominant stablecoin inside these rails. That's great for the dollar. That's great for the brand. Pushes out the yuan, pushes out the euro, like the dollar wins. What I think maybe Jake is alluding to is, and what, um, and w- this is what Jeremy Alera on, on the podcast alluded to as well, is maybe it reduces the U.S.'s abilities to tinker with dials and levers around the dollar because uh, it kind of has escaped. It's, it's out of the box, right? It's out in public permissionless Ethereum, well, and now it's kind of out of the box. So one, one way I could see what you're saying is, like, I, st- I still think, obviously, a USDC, at least in its current form, has to be backed fully by a dollar in a banking system, right? So the, the US government still has that leverage point, still in a bank somewhere. Um, but I think I, I understand what you're saying from the perspective of um, US foreign policy, perhaps. This definitely dodges around the SWIFT protocol, which is basically the, you know, the world uh, payment 
transaction infrastructure that's totally adopted and is, and is largely controlled by the U.S. So if the U.S. wants to sanction Russia or Iran or you know North Korea, they do it through SWIFT. Um, you can't sanction Ethereum, so you you can't get around like that foreign policy element of it, and and perhaps that is eroding away kind of the the monetary control that the U.S. might have. What about this? I th I think it's also interesting that um, you know both Jeremy and and Jake I think there are, are saying that like yeah the, the U.S. actually um, central bankers are not afraid of. Uh, Bitcoin and Ether eating away their reserve currency status yet, like they're not. But I wonder at what point does that does that flip it, David? Right, like so. Probably at a point where it's too late, right? So this is <laughs> this is very much the um, um, uh, what's that Clayton Christensen book, um, the innovator's dilemma, basically. It's like you don't know that the the young scrappy startup is beating you until it's too late, and you're too big right. to actually move and counter counter mm -hmm. that action. So, like, at what market cap does that happen? Does that happen at you know two trillion crypto, five trillion crypto, ten trillion crypto? Does that happen when other uh, central banks start buying crypto reserves? Um, I think it's going to happen, but right now they're still in this period of, of completely dismissing it as a store of value asset class. They're not even threatened by it yeah. because of its volatility. This is part of the, um, the brilliance of, you know, a Bitcoin and an Ether kind of finding that wedge and bootstrapping itself to moneyness. It, it, it looks like a toy to them. It looks yeah. like a toy money, not a real money. And right. that's going to be, that, that's how it sneaks in through the back door. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally right. And importantly, I think the dynamic that we should be paying attention to is like Bitcoin at like, I don't know what the market cap is, like seven, three quarters trillion dollars is where Bitcoin is right now. Bitcoin is at that level of value uh, and it's not yet being banned or restricted by the United States. So therefore it's continuing to waltz into its you know future of the, the world's reserve asset, perhaps. Um, Bitcoin at three quarters of a trillion dollars is easier to ban at Bitcoin at $2 trillion or $5 trillion. And at, at the point where the United States does decide, if, if it does decide, I'm not saying that it will, but if it does decide that it wants to uh, rein in Bitcoin in order to protect the dollar, the more the higher the market cap that Bitcoin is and Ethereum, um, the more authoritarian the United States government is going to have to be in order to make that work, right? Uh, if they wanted to quell Bitcoin back in 2012, uh, it would have been this very niche story where like a bunch of crypto anarchists, libertarians got really pissed off and there was like 50 of them. And that was the end of the story. <clears throat> that was the end of the story. Uh, in 2021 or 2023, we have businesses, public companies, you know, just the, the list goes on of all the affected parties of the result of the United States desire to reduce Bitcoin's dominance as a monetary asset. So every single day that, that Bitcoin and Ether don't um, don't get, quote unquote, banned by the U.S. government is another day where the U.S. government has to be more and more authoritarian in order to get that job done. I think that's yeah. important to watch. Yeah, I totally agree. There is such a thing as escape velocity where like it's too late. These assets have kind of escaped and um, are very difficult to uh, to quell them after that. Um, I do think that there's this other point to you that that Jeremy sort of agreed with which is, um, okay, so cent central banks haven't woken up to the fact that 
a crypto store of value could threaten their monetary dominance. They don't even know. They're not woke to that, right? Someday they might, um, and they might get a little hostile towards something like a Bitcoin as a result. Um, but what's interesting is where there might not be any wins for the US government in Bitcoin, they're content to ignore it now, but they don't see Bitcoin as a win in any way. They're not encouraging Bitcoin adoption. They actually might see Ethereum, the network, as a win, right? And I'm talking specifically about um, open democratic societies to the, to the extent the US remains one, cross your fingers, right? Um, but like open democratic societies need and want an open like internet, basically, uh, credibly neutral internet that uh, isn't controlled by any authoritarian regime, right? And so you have in geopolitics, you have China kind of building out its own state-controlled blockchain and central bank digital currency. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is probably not a U.S. you know um, central Fed digital chain. currency Fed yeah. chain. Yeah. That's probably not the answer to that. And Jeremy agreed with that. The answer to that might very well be a a public internet blockchain. It might very well be Ethereum. So I think what could happen is, well, the US government actually doesn't see any wins for itself on Bitcoin. It's mm -hmm. just, at best, it's ambivalent. Mm -hmm. At worst, it's hostile, but at best, it's ambivalent. It's never gonna encourage adoption of Bitcoin. What's in it for them? It might actually want to encourage the adoption of Ethereum mm -hmm. because there is something in it for them. It provides mm -hmm. a internet rails to export its dollar dominance. And that's exactly what it's what it's doing in, in some form with, with stable coins. Now, it's going to want control over that. It's going to want regulation around that. It's going right. to possibly want whitelist, blacklist type functionality. Mm -hmm. But um, it might want to adopt the internet of money, essentially, as a, as a tool for itself. And I'm wondering if, um, like, we don't have enough forward thinking people in, in, in Congress or in government to actually start thinking about this and pursuing it now. But I'm wondering if that becomes part of the conversation in the years to come. Yeah, that's another dynamic that I've thought of, thought of um, not necessarily just the relationship between um, the United States, you know, government and the Ethereum blockchain, but also just the fact that the Ethereum blockchain being a Turing complete uh, expressive blockchain offers much more surface area for companies to come and build on, right? USDC is built on Ethereum. It's not built on Bitcoin. Um, uh, and then all these other applications, like for example, DYDX, like built on Ethereum, all these other companies that have received investments from other US companies that other US companies have skin in the game and stake on, uh, they are in interested in the survival of Ethereum because that's where all these investments have gone, right? That's when, when, when all these funds are uh, collecting in money, they're deploying it to Ethereum, like one way or another. There's, there's a few like crypto banks or, or Bitcoin banks like BlockFi and they've received seed funding, but all these other seed fundings are going to Ethereum and Ethereum based projects. And so not only does the US regulators have their own interest in what the Ethereum blockchain can do for them, but all of their, like so many of their constituents have like financial investments into the Ethereum blockchain as well. And that's because of the Ethereum blockchain just has so much more surface area for attracting investments. It kind of gives itself its own shield of just like this human, this human shield, this capital shield of all these investments where, you know, if the US government comes in, comes in hard against Ethereum, there's so many people that get affected and so many people that get pissed off. And that, that rate of people getting pissed off because the United States is impacting their investments 
is ticking up exponentially faster out of any other blockchain ecosystem that we've seen in this industry because of the capabilities of Ethereum. Totally agree. It becomes too important to ban. It becomes too systemically fundamentally important for the US economy to ban at that right. point. That is another form of escape philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the last thing to talk through, at least from my side, David, is uh, uh, Jeremy's thoughts on, on DeFi, right? Mm -hmm. So ultra bullish about it, yeah. it sounds like. Um, so yeah, like Jeremy, you fit right in here. <laughs> Good to have you on Bankless. <laughs> but um, also, um, he seemed to think that DeFi has not yet had its own final boss moment, mm. its own um, eye of Sauron that turns to it like the, the regulatory regime, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are some things that regulators will want to get out of DeFi that they don't have right now, right? So um, like famously, um, <laughs> now, now I guess famous, Brian Brooks penned that self-driving car, car kind of metaphor where he said, well- Self-driving like, banks. Self-driving banks metaphor, yeah. Um, where he, he said like, our regulatory um, thought on this whole space has to change because there's not people, um, there's not a governance board, there's not corporate directors, right? These are like protocols, these are machines that are operating. So like that aside, it, it seems like the US regulatory regime and the world regulatory regime will want something out of DeFi. And that is kind of a, a risk point because I'm not sure where that exactly goes or how, how uh, DeFi can possibly answer. Like, it seems to me that there might be a mismatch. They might want something out of DeFi that DeFi just can't give, right? right? Like maybe financial surveillance, maybe they mm -hmm. want AML KYC on the base chain, right? Yeah, right. Like, this is, these are not things that Ethereum is willing or able to even give these regulators. I don't think these regulators are going to be able to figure out what DeFi is. I think you and I have a pretty decent understanding like, of DeFi. And I, I use this model in my, in my articles all the time where I say like DeFi is this one singular P uh, structure. Like it's a collection of apps, applications. And then what all these applications can do is what we call DeFi to be, right? Um, I, when I think regulators and, and people coming into this space are trying to figure out what DeFi is, they're looking at like one app at a time. They're like, Uniswap, is that DeFi? Like <laughs> yeah. Maker, is that DeFi? Like what's yeah. DeFi here? And I don't think they, it takes a while for you to integrate like this whole concept of money Legos and see the structure as a whole. So when the regulators come in and they say like, you know, Uniswap, like there are, tra there's trading going on there and I don't like it. And, but that's on DeFi. That's just Uniswap. Like this, they're just going to be very granular. Okay. About it. I, okay. I, I don't know what they're going to do about it. So what happens, right? So, so far it's been small enough to escape their attention, but I don't think it'll remain that small this cycle, right? I mean, you talked about um, this cycle, Uniswap is Binance. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're going to see Uniswap uh, at some point in the cycle on CNBC. Like and yeah, some some CNBC guy that might is that's a good top signal. I need to write that one down. Well, some some CNBC guy is going to be like showing you how to get into some asset using MetaMask or whatever, and like and like um, the Uniswap interface. And once that happens, then regulators are going to say, "Oh, Uniswap, billions in trading activity. Okay, we know what Coinbase is. I know what Binance is. We just shut down." Um, uh, a bitmax <laughs> like but like how what how do we get our arms wrapped around this whole uniswap thing yeah. okay and then what happens then is the question mm -hmm. i'm sure they go knocking on the door of uniswap 
like mm. the developers behind it. Like, mm. I bet that happens. And then what? Like, where, where does this, how do you extrapolate what's going to happen with something right. like even an app like Uniswap? Well, I think in their investigation, they're going to see USDC being the number two liquid asset on top of Uniswap. And they're going to be like, hmm, what do I really hate about this? <laughs> I don't and, have an answer other than that. Well, it, so this is, this is uh, I guess, something to pay attention to in the future. And this is why we'll, we'll continue to have these kind of conversations with people like Jeremy, people like um, Jake Travinsky and others in this space to help us make sense of what could evolve in this regulatory apparatus in the months to come. Um, David, good debrief, man. Good debrief. <laughs> Thanks for the chat. Yeah. We'll see you and, guys later. And listeners, thank you for being a premium member. Hoping you guys are enjoying these debriefs. Cheers. Take care.